The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. Hey everyone. Welcome to Dead Men Do Tell Tales. A podcast about forensic pathology related topics. I'm Nicole Kroom. And I'm Jordan Taylor. And we're both pathology residents who are going into forensic pathology. And today we've brought to you a special guest. Uh, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Dr. Jana Andronowski and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Akron and I'm also a forensic anthropologist. And where is Akron exactly for those of us less geographically inclined? Right. So Akron is somewhere I actually never visited before I moved here, and it is close to Cleveland, Ohio. And in our first episode ever of this show, which was a little over, almost a year ago now, yeah. um, we talked a little bit about forensic anthropology, but for those who haven't heard the episode or who haven't heard it in a while, would you go ahead and just give everybody a little refresher about what forensic anthropology is? Of course. So the role of the forensic anthropologist in human identification is quite broad and we have many different roles. So for example, we assist law enforcement with casework involving human skeletal remains. So if remains are found in an outdoor environment or in a burial, law enforcement calls us or should call us. <laughs> and we typically employ archeological methods to assist in excavation or in the surface recovery of those remains. But we can also help determine if the remains are found for bone or not, if they're human or not, and how many people are represented. In your episode, you guys mentioned the development of a biological profile. So that's another super important component of what we do. And so we call the four aspects of that the big four, and this includes biological sex, so male or female, age at death, ancestral affinity or population affinity, and stature or living height. And this helps us basically include or exclude individuals from a missing persons pool. And we always provide a range for age or for living height. For example, someone will never say somebody is just 25 years old or just five foot one. We always provide that range or else there's a risk that, you know, the officers will only look for, you know, exactly somebody who's 21 years old. And is your range pretty similar? Like, do you always give a 10 year range or can you narrow it down a little bit more, a little bit? less usually? So age estimation becomes increasingly more complicated the older we get because there's a lot of variation in degenerative change. So basically up to the point that we're still growing in development, so early adulthood, we can use markers that have pretty consistent chronological age changes like dental eruption, for example, or the closure of, of bony caps or epiphyses is, is what they're called when bones are growing. But when we're done growing, you're basically looking at assessment of joint surfaces, so how those break down. And this is really variable individual to individual. Cool. And what got you into forensic anthropology? Like, how did you end up in this world? <laughs> so all of us actually have a really different path that we took to get into forensic anthropology. So you'll ask this question to different practitioners or academics, and everyone has a different answer. Which so makes it more fun. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So for me, I was pre-med all the way through undergraduate. And then in my very last semester, after I wrote the MCAT, oh, no. I, <laughs> I took a human osteology course and 
and I just fell in love with Bone. And I find it so remarkable because Bone's really a living record and it's constantly changing over a person's life in response to injury or hormones or stressors or lifestyle factors like substance use, for example. And so we can retrieve a lot of bone or a lot of bone, a lot of information <laughs> about bone yeah. from just a tiny piece, which I think is really amazing. And in particular, that's why I'm drawn to histology uh, or microscopic assessment of bone, because we can really learn a lot, even from a small fragment. So if bone is, is burnt or if bone has been dismembered or other situations where you're dealing with really small pieces. And quick question, because you said that you wrote your MCATs. Where are you from? So I'm from Canada. Okay, actually. that's what I figured. <laughs> yeah, if I say about, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you, you didn't say you took your MCAT. You said you wrote your MCAT, which is a very uh, British oh, or really? Canadian way to say it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure it's changed a lot, you know, since since that time. And you know, sometimes I still wish I would have taken the MD PhD route. I really considered that at University of Toronto, but I wasn't ready to sort of give up my love of forensic science at that point. And not that I really am now, but I wanted to be a forensic anthropologist or forensic pathologist as well. Which that would, that understand. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of always my goal. Speaking of your degree, what sort of training did you have to go through in order to become a forensic anthropologist? Right. So this is a really good question. And this is something that I always talk about when I talk to student groups or my undergraduates, uh, because it is quite specialized. And if you want to practice, you need to go all the way through to PhD. So typically you can do an undergraduate degree in a variety of disciplines. I always advise my students that you need to be a true hard scientist first before a forensic scientist. So to major in biology or chemistry or physics or math, and then you can specialize in your graduate work. So that's what I did. I did my undergrad in biological sciences uh, at Simon Fraser University. So that's in Vancouver, Canada. So I miss the West Coast <laughs> very much. <laughs> my heart is there. And, <laughs> I also did a degree in criminology. So oh, I actually cool. chose SFU because they had forensic scientists there. Oh, wow. And that was a really great place in Canada to, to study it. So I'm really glad I made that choice, uh, even now. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and, and from there I went and pursued a degree in biological anthropology at the University of Toronto. And so there I got to specialize, take advanced courses in human osteology, and you know get my hands dirty with research at medical examiner's offices, for example. I did. The majority of my master's research at Office of Chief Medical Examiner's Office in New York City with the Forensic Anthropology Unit there. And from there, I went to University of Tennessee in Knoxville and studied biological anthropology. And that's one of the uh, most prominent programs in, in the United States and has the renowned Forensic Anthropology Center or as it's colloquially known, the body farm. Yeah, yeah when I saw that on your, um, your website, I was going to ask if you worked at that particular body farm. <laughs> right. I did. Yes. So, and, you know, I still visit there and, and collaborate with researchers there. I was just visiting last March, actually, uh, procuring bone samples for a project. So can you tell us a little bit about what kind of work you've done with the body farm? Sure. So as a student, we had a, a sort of a variety of roles there. So we were involved with correspondence with people who are interested in, in donating their bodies to the facility. So this is unique from just say donating your body to science or actually donating to this particular facility. And so we collect uh, a lot of demographic information, lifestyle information uh, from the pre-donors. And we also were involved with basically intake of the donors and placing the donors in the facility and also recovery of the bones uh, after uh, X number of times. So this would, would vary depending on 
if the donors are being used for a study or sometimes they just decompose naturally and then the bones are collected and curated into the collection. And so this was a really great experience for students because we would teach them how to recover remains like we would with the police, for example, but with real bodies. And usually you do this with plastic skeletons, like during my training, that, that's what I did. So, and, and then now my research has sort of evolved to the you know, microscopic assessment. So I'll take samples from the skeletons once they're recovered for histological or imaging research. And can you tell us a little bit about your time with the New York Medical Examiner? I feel like it's something that a lot of people hear a lot about, it being one of the more well-renowned medical examiner offices in the world and you know, what your experience there was like and what you kind of got to do with them and that kind of thing. Sure, so it sort of started out as a, an internship project and I was working primarily with one of their forensic anthropologists who is a bone histomorphologist or a bone biology specialist. And it sort of led me down this path that I'm on today, right? It really sparked uh, my interest in this type of research. So I was primarily there doing research and also assisting on a case-by-case basis with the analysis of biological profile. But primarily I was involved in the histological assessment of age from small pieces of bone, like I was explaining. And there are different types of factors we use to assess age. And this is based on the products of bone turnover. So I mentioned bone is not static. It's always changing in response to all of these different lifestyle factors or hormones or diet or illness, all of these things. I really learned everything I know from them and I really valued the time I spent there. So that first internship, it sort of turned into a larger, longer term research project because I ended up getting funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada to return there and pursue research. And so all that time I spent sort of combined, I assisted with casework, I would observe autopsies or, you know, help weigh organs and, and all that sort of fun stuff that <laughs> is just part of being in that setting, right? I also yeah. did some death investigation and, and learned from some of their very senior death investigators, you know, how to take photos at the scene, how to count prescriptions, all these sorts of things. So it ended up being really multifaceted, even though my primary goal was to work on research and perform analysis for the histological age estimate. Cool. So in that first episode, when we talked about forensic anthropology, we specifically mentioned some research that you were doing looking at changes in the bone in relation to chronic opioid use. Can you tell us a little bit more about that research in particular? Right. So I do have to include a disclaimer here because this work or portion of this work is funded by the National Institute of Justice. So the opinions, findings, and conclusions expressed here are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. So these questions that I have have really stemmed from the opioid misuse that has really become an epidemic in the state of Ohio. It's been hit especially hard by this. And In 2016 alone, we saw over 4,000 Americans dying from an opioid overdose in the state of Ohio. And as we know, just the prescription of opioid pain relievers just skyrocketed in in the late 90s. And then we saw this significant increase in the availability of synthetic opioids, so fentanyl, carfentanil, in about the early 2010s. And what I found really shocking, actually, is that the National Institutes of Health really statistics about the percentage of people who are prescribed opioids and 20 to 30 percent of those people abuse them with three to four percent turning to an illicit alternative 
So because it's cheaper. So that that really was was jarring for me. And so as a, a bone biologist, I read the clinical literature as well about the effects of opioids on bone cell receptors. And there's this growing recognition that opioid use affects deterioration and fragility of our bone microstructure. And opioids actually have this inhibitory effect on the cells that form bone, so the osteoblasts. And then this results in them being sort of slowed or, or lazy and results in more bone destruction from the osteoclast than formation. So we're seeing this disruption to this process of bone turnover that maintains its homeostasis. So not only do opioids make you more lazy to do things in life, they also make your bones <laughs> more lazy to put down more, more mineralization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I'm interested in, in looking at these effects of fragility because we're seeing it even in younger people. And actually my work at the, at the medical examiner's office is what sort of spurred my interest in all these questions because there were times when I'd perform with my boss a histological age estimate on an unknown individual. And I was just looking, you know, at the small piece of femur, for example, whereas the other anthropologists would be looking at the more macroscopic or gross assessment of the skeleton. And when we would come together to discuss our findings, they would say, okay, macroscopic indicators suggest this is somebody between 20 and 35. We would say, that doesn't make sense. You know, the histology 60 plus, right? Wow. So it was a huge discrepancy and just these huge areas of, of, of resorption and, and, and like big irregularities that just hmm. indicate that there's dysregulation going on. And so basically our methods were not accurate when applied to pathological bone like this. Can you so that's kind of my whole impetus with this thing is can we devise new formulae to incorporate the changes that we're seeing from different factors? And in my case, it's, it's opioids. But humans are so complicated, right? If someone's using drugs, they might also have a poor diet. They might have chronic illness from IV drug use. So we really can't look at it in a vacuum. And that makes it tough. You said that people that are using opioids have essentially weaker bones. Do they clinically have more fractures too, like in the live person? World. So this is another thing that I'm interested in. So it, it has forensic implications, but also clinically, if we're seeing this increased fragility, it could affect how bone breaks, right? So if you experience a traumatic fracture, it might appear more exaggerated. And this can also affect how bone fracture is interpreted at autopsy. Mm, for sure. Can you tease out that the bones look older in the opioid versus the normal aging sense? Is there any way microscopically that you can differentiate? So that's what we're trying to figure out right okay. now. Okay. Yes. So I'm working with basically working to develop uh, a bank of bone specimens from individuals between about 20 and 60 years of age who were known to use opioids long term, and then sort of a control sample of individuals in the same age who were not documented to use drugs. Not so true. what I'm primarily interested in is these these products of, of bone remodeling. So we have you know structural units in bone. And we have different, I mentioned resorptive areas. So these areas of sort of vacancy where the osteoclasts have kind of eaten away the older damaged bone, but it hasn't been filled in yet. So we're looking to see how these features correlate with age. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. So to, to be continued. <laughs> and how are you taking into account those other things such as diet or maybe occupation, somebody who's in a more strenuous thing where they might have more joint damage or are you taking those things into account somehow? Right. So to get around that biomechanical question, I'm 
primarily assessing the rib. So in the rib, we all have about the same biomechanical variability. We're all breathing, right? Whereas, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but with, with something like the femur, you know, I could be really sedentary, like right now when I work at my desk all day and I do not exercise as much as I should during quarantine versus, you know, a runner who is going to be going out every day and putting stress on those lower limb bones, right? So in, in studying that element, we're trying to get around that biomechanical variability. However, as I mentioned, humans are so multifactorial. So I have a lot of information from the individuals in which I'm collecting this, these data, but some don't neatly fit into you know one category or the other. How did you get from being interested in forensic anthropology to getting into the opioid world within forensic anthropology, like the subspecialty within the subspecialty. <laughs> right. So I think as, as researchers, our interests are constantly evolving. So I've always been interested in how we can improve histological age estimation methods in forensic anthropology because we have not had a new method developed, you know, for many years. And uh, like the most recent method is 2002 and they're typically developed on older individuals so the developmental set are older individuals and they're typically of european descent so not a lot of diversity so they're not applicable to a lot of the individuals we encounter uh, in, in a forensic context and so we're really in need of, of fresh new approaches as well as new statistical approaches we kind of cram everything into a linear model you know the number of remodeling events reflects time and we sort of cram it in there but as I was saying, as we get older, it is extremely variable. Perfect. And so our methods are not very accurate. They're not very precise. And so I was always interested in that, you know, how we can improve them. But then there's so much we don't know about all these different factors. So I mentioned hormones. So estrogen, how does that affect bone? How does human parathyroid hormone affect bone? How does osteoporosis affect bone? So all of these things we have to look at individually. We can't look at this all, you know, in one big question. And so right now my focus is opioids. So particularly fentanyl and heroin are my, my primary interest, but there's so many variants, right? So how do we control for that? It's especially when you don't really know what's in it, if it's a synthetic. And a lot of the toxicology tests at, at the hospital don't test for these things, right? So you have to wait to, to get the results at autopsy to find out what, what's actually going on. And that could take like six plus months to come back half the time. So sure. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever see levels of opioids in bone itself? Like, do you ever run that? Or you're just looking at the effects of the opioids? Right, yes. So I'm primarily interested in assessing the bone microarchitecture. So how much porosity is present, how those pores, so where you know, your vessels and things run through, how those are interconnected with each other, their diameter, these sorts of things. But the samples I'm collecting are fresh, so and they have associated soft tissues, and they're flash frozen. And so I hope to collaborate widely to get more information from not just the bone, but also the, the soft tissues. So at this point, where are you primarily collecting specimens from? So I do have permissions with, with certain medical examiner's offices to procure samples from known overdose cases as well as an organ procurement operation. Oh. So harvesting bone at the time of organ donation, if it's approved by the family for research. Okay. I'd like to introduce you to the people of pathology. Hi, I'm Dennis Strank. I'm a pathologist assistant and the host of the People of Pathology podcast. 
Join me every Monday as I interview the most interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Each week, the guests will tell us about their own stories and adventures, whether it be writing a book, participating in new research or global pathology outreach, or starting their own websites or podcasts. With these stories, I hope to inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. Download the People of Pathology podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And is the opioid research your primary focus, or do you have other projects going on in the lab as well? Right. So the, the opioid project is sort of our, our big push right now. We're working on a number of different related studies. Um, but basically, if it involves bone and it involves bone microstructure, I'm interested. And so I have students, for example, who are looking at the effects that the external environment can have on bone microstructure. So say skeletal remains are found in an outdoor environment. We suspect they've been there for quite a long time. We'll see evidence of that, not just on the external skeleton, but within the microstructure too. So soil staining or microbial tunneling. And so I'm really interesting and tr interested in trying to parse out these effects using 3D imaging mm -hmm. and looking at individuals from different postmortem intervals. Cool. So I'm interested in that. And then, you know, I have students who work on vet med related projects. So, you know, I have one student who's looking at the incidence of osteomyelitis or bone infection in canines following both traumatic fracture and what's called tibial plateau leveling surgery. So and that's basically for, apply, that's for what? What's that surgery for? So it's it's like a common pathology in, in dogs where their, their gait is off for my oh. And so they have to sort of sort of level off the, the tibia and oh. you know insert some plates and it's really common in in, in certain breeds, but I'd have gotcha. to check which ones. Um, but but basically we just apply different types of, of imaging modalities. So regular, you know, microscopy as well as 3D imaging at both laboratory and then mass particle accelerator levels. <laughs> <laughs> What's the coolest thing you get to do every day in your research? Shoot lasers at, at bones. Yes. <laughs> so so what, what, is the, what is the reason for shooting said lasers at bone? Like what is the information you're getting from that? Right, so I, sh I should sort of, of preface, like, you know, I say these big words like, you know, mass particle accelerator or, or synchrotron. But, but basically a synchrotron facility is a type of mass particle accelerator that allows us to image materials or, or, or tissues at uh, nanoscale uh, levels. And so from this, we can get a lot more information about bone, right? So we can actually look at the cell spaces because it's dry bone, right? The cells aren't, aren't there, we can't see those, but we use their cell spaces as a proxy. And so going to one of these places completely changed you know, my perspective of, of what intense research is because our, we call it beam time. <laughs> and so the beam team goes to beam time and <laughs> we get you know X number of shifts, but all these shifts are consecutive. So we'll run experiments for say 72 hours straight. Yep. And so we have you know one person in the lab mounting the specimens and the other person running the software. Yep. But you know the images we can obtain and the, and the subsequent data, it's just far beyond what we can do with two dimensional microscopy. For example, beam how time. often? No, how, sorry, how often do you get beam time? So typically, we go twice a year, and primarily, I'm doing experiments at the Canadian Light Source. So that's in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Very cold, very far away. 
Yeah, but, but there are other synchrotron facilities in, in North America, but only four. So it, it is oh, pretty wow. specialized. And beam time is sort of like applying for a grant. It's a peer-reviewed process. Oh. So if you get it, that's great. If not, you can pay like $30,000 for eight hours, which... That's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, but if you check out my website, there's a lot of uh, our images on there. Yeah, so I'd say that's definitely the most exciting and, and the most cutting edge uh, research that, that we're doing right now. And, and again, we ask all sorts of questions. It all comes back to how we can assess cortical porosity and what that can tell us about how bone adapts, how bone ages, and different disease processes. And do you mostly work in the arena of research at this point, or do you still sometimes work on cases in at like a medical legal death investigation office? Right. I do consult on cases uh, in the Ohio area as well as Pennsylvania, but I really like the cases that involve the microscopy or the histology. And so in cases where they have a small fragment, it's been burnt, they want to know if it's human or not. So those are the ones I prioritize. Okay. Cool. What's, if you can talk about it, what's one of your more interesting cases that you've had either in the past or more recently right. that, that's linked more to forensic anthropology and like the work that you do? Yeah, I can't say too much about the specifics, but, sure. but I, I definitely have lived through cases that or worked through cases that we've been really confused about the discrepancy, like I mentioned, between the macroscopic assessment and the microscopic assessment. And we usually don't find too much information out about these individuals once they're identified, but in some cases we do. It kind of depends, but it's rare. But those cases where we saw this huge discrepancy, some of those individuals were known to be drug users or long-term drug users at the time. And so that really, really sparked my interest in what is going on at the bone cellular level that's resulting in these changes and how can we make our methods better? Okay. So yeah, the one I'm thinking of, it's kind of like high profile and I no worries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I would I would definitely say my interests stem from from just my experiences and 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 problems that I hope to solve. And you guys can probably relate to this too, but as forensic pathologists, you're really solving this puzzle about how somebody died. And for us, you know, we don't do that. That's the medical examiner, but we try to find out as much information from just the bones as possible. Right. And so it's sort of this puzzle. Who was this person? What happened to them prior to death, around the time of death? Yeah. So the, the ultimate goal for us is to bring closure to the families. And so these are people who have often been missing loved ones for an extended period of time. Um, often when they call a forensic anthropologist, there's not a lot of soft tissue left, right? Or else it would go to autopsy, it would go to, to you guys. And, and so that's sort of the main impetus. You always have to remember you're working for the families. So kind of in that same vein, what do you think about the television show Bones? So I'm very glad you asked me this because <laughs> Um, everybody always says, oh, you're, you know, you're like bones. And, and I know you guys talked about it a bit on your first episode, but there are a lot of things that I like to clear up when <laughs> I talk about. So if I give a public outreach lecture, for example, for I sure. always tell students, you know, I'll show a picture of, of Dr. Brennan. And Prince Brennan, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, she's with her fancy backlit table or a hologram machine, and she's got a skeleton laid out, but it's usually not anatomically correct. <laughs> so, so we never work with the FBI in that capacity. Hmm. So we would never have a partner. We would never carry a gun. 
right? We would never wear stilettos at a scene. <laughs> what? You don't um, wear stilettos to the scene? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I just remember this. I've only seen a few episodes because uh, often if you're teaching a forensic anthropology class, a good exercise is to give your students an episode to watch and have them critique the role of the forensic anthropologist. Oh, that would be a but, fun assignment. That's yeah, good. So that's something I've done, I've done in the past. But it's really critical to note that the forensic anthropologist does not determine the cause of death. So yes. we never determine the cause of death. We only describe what we're seeing. So the biological profile or trauma or pathology to the bones. So that's a big thing because, you know, she might say, oh, this person like definitely was murdered and it was, you know, um, or she'll talk about like occupation related topics. Yes. You know, this person was a tennis player. You know, we can't deduce that kind of information. So would you be able to be like, you know, they have more wear in this elbow than the other elbow. Like, could you distinguish that? I mean, or not really. I mean, I have no idea. No, I mean, you know, like if you think about the basic anatomy, if you have somebody who does an occupation where they put repetitive stress on a joint, like a truck driver, for example, they're always shifting gears, say with their right arm, you'll see potentially more wear on that shoulder joint or to the rotator cuff uh, tendons, that kind of thing. But that's not typically something that we would, we would never say this person is right-handed or. Okay. You know, okay. That, that kind of thing. So that also is unrealistic. And also I want to point out that forensic anthropologists typically don't have access to extremely expensive equipment. We're often found in, in basements of old buildings. Yes, <laughs> for sure. I feel like so, forensic pathologists are in that same realm too, where yes. they always like, it's very similar with like our portrayal on TV in terms exactly. of having stuff available. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you know, like that backlit table, I showed this picture of her with the backlit table and I don't even know how that would be useful and like blind you when you're trying to, right? Lay <laughs> right? So it looks cooler um, on camera though. So yeah, right, right, exactly. You know, and, and like with my research, it, it's really rare the type of research that I do. And so I don't want to give the impression that every forensic anthropologist is going to do, you know, micro CT and, and synchrotron imaging. And it's not feasible, right? It's expensive, but I'm hoping to shed light on these foundational you know, aspects of what's causing change at the cellular level to inform new methods. So that's, that's kind of my goal. I was just going to ask if it's not too technically difficult to explain, mm -hmm. what are like the basic differences between a human bone and an animal bone? Like, how do you establish that a fragment of bone came from a human when you're just looking at it under the microscope? Right. Or grossly. So, yeah. So um, can I actually, can I share my screen with you guys? Cause I'm yeah. yeah. Okay. I actually just did a talk and I was just talking about this. And so I've got, I like still have this up. Okay. Yeah. This is a very good question. Okay. All right. So when you're trained in, in human osteology, it's very straightforward for me if I have an intact bone to look at it and say, it doesn't fit neatly into the 206 bones of the adult human skeleton, but that gets more complicated when we just have a fragment. But say you're looking at this, you know, image here, these two pairs of bones, you guys know, you know, your, your skeletal anatomy. Do either of these pairs of bones look potentially human to you? So this is one centimeter. Yes, and the scale is important. Um, potentially, yeah. Right, okay. So often when I show this image, people might think, oh, it looks like, like the one on the, the pair on the right might look like a human clavicle, right? Yeah. These pairs here. But these are actually the paired humeri, so the upper arm bone and, and paired femora of an alligator. 
Oh. Yeah. And so again, it, it, to an untrained eye, like say law enforcement, they're not trained in osteology, for example, they might think, oh, this is human. Here's a clavicle. But then what if you have just a tiny fragment, right, from say the, the shaft of this bone, then how can you tell? So this is where you bring in your histology, right? Yeah. So for example, if we look at this image, so this is if you were looking through a, a bright field microscope at about 200 times, you can see here on the left that this sort of looks like a, a really consistent brick-like pattern. This is called plexiform lamellar bone, and we see this really commonly in fast-growing non-human animals. But this section on the right here, you can see these round structural features. So these are osteons or basic basic structural units of bones. If we zoom in, you know, they look like this. This is really characteristic of secondary bone in large mammals like humans. Canines also have osteonal systems, but again, this pattern that you're seeing here is very characteristically human. Oh, and wow. so that's where our work comes in and becomes very important. Oh, cool. Would you be able to share these pictures with us and can we post them to our social media? Sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I have like a lot this of- This was like you've spoke, spoken about them and if we post them, people sure. can like then look on our social media to like kind of follow along with how you've described stuff. Of course, yeah. And I have, you know, like information about histological methods. Perfect. And remodeling and, and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, just let me know what, what you're interested in. You know, if you want to see, I could show you like what the synchrotron looks like, for example. Oh, sure, that'd be cool. Yeah, so these are sort of a spattering of my favorite synchrotrons. So this is the Canadian light source here where I do my research. And oh, wow. of course, I'm showing it when it's negative 40, nine months of the year, because it wouldn't be Saskatchewan without it. <laughs> it has a, a, a biomedical imaging beamline that's specific to it. It reminds me of Vermont a lot with the negative 40. Yeah, this is, here it is again. Um, but if we look inside, so this is from the, the mezzanine level. So you're looking down at the storage ring, which is the component that houses the electrons. So they circle around close to the speed of light and create breaking radiation. And so this creates mm. these high energy x-rays that are shot down these beam lines to laboratory end stations that allow us as researchers to control the wavelengths and set our parameters for our experiments. Cool. Wow. So are there multiple experiments going on at the same time coming off these various beams? Yes. So coming off the various beam lines, and so this type of facility is extremely complicated because if there's a problem, say, <laughs> that's specific to one beamline, it can throw out the whole storage ring. Gotcha. I mean, these, yeah, it's, it's just incredibly like physics heavy and complicated, but that's awesome. um, the biomedical imaging or, or beamit <coughs> beamlines are what I use for, for my research. I don't know how much time you guys have, but I can tell you a bit about it, but, uh, and see some of the images because I think, cause I've been talking about it. It's so visual, histology is so visual. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things with the podcast format ends up being mm -hmm. like, we post pictures for a reason, but it's definitely like a balance of how can we make it so people that are driving and they can understand what's going on or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I know. Do you have any like word of, words of advice or anything like that for people that might be interested in pursuing a career in forensic anthropology or researching maybe in particular the opioid association with bone density? My, my advice for students is definitely to pursue a hard science. So don't be afraid of physics and math. It's really important to be a scientist first and then you can become a forensic scientist. So be wary of those programs that are just specific to forensic science because you know they're sort of sexy, right? You're, you're kind of buying into, you know, something that's popular. And, and these programs can be good, but my recommendation as a professor is 
to study hard scientists first. And then, you know, if you decide you don't want to be a forensic anthropologist, your degree is going to be a lot more versatile, right? You get a degree in biology, you can work in labs, you can go on to med school, physician's assistant school, dental school, whatever it is. Um, whereas if you major in anthropology and forensic science, you're going to be more limited because if you do want to pursue this, you will have to go, you know, all the way through to PhD. And yeah. so this isn't meant to be critical, but it's just sort of a realistic uh, approach. Um, at a time, there were more forensic practitioners who were in anthropology who had master's degrees, but this is becoming less common. And, and now a lot of medical examiner's office prefer the board certification, like you guys talked about in your first episode, the ABFA certification. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the highest level that one can achieve in our field. Gotcha. Yeah. So, cool. so that's sort of my advice. But my also other word of advice is to just get involved in research early and often work with different professors or, or different researchers and try to figure out what you like. You know, it might not be bone histology, but some other aspect of forensics or pursue an internship, even if it's unpaid, that's painful, but short time, get your foot in that door, right? It can turn into something amazing. I definitely wouldn't be where I am without that first internship For and sure. it changed my career completely. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I guess, are there any other resources or places that you would tell people to turn if they're interested in the field, but not sure if they're quite ready to pursue it full on. Right. So there are some good resources online to the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and also the Ellis Curley Foundation. So Ellis Curley was the forensic anthropologist who developed the first histological age estimation method cool. and really provided sort of the foundation. This was in the 60s. And so they have a, a website that has resources for students and for, for researchers. And this actually was the foundation that recognized the opioid work at the meeting this year and, and, and honored the, I guess, best research paper award cool. uh, for the project. So they have, they have a really good uh, sort of data bank resources. And honestly, people can Google, you know, forensic anthropologists, there's not very many of us. <laughs> most, most of us are happy to answer questions, you know, to, to, to reach out to us, right? We're, we're happy to talk about it. And, you know, I think a lot of students are sort of nervous to approach professors, but we wish that they would contact us more, especially now when we're all working at home, right? Of right. course. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's definitely my advice. And, you know, if there's someone at your institution who studies forensics or is published in forensics who does casework, try to talk to them. You know, that's how I got involved. Um, I took classes, got to know the professor, and then ended up doing research with her as an undergraduate. And, and, and she was the one who actually encouraged me to take the course in forensic bonistology where I met my contact at the medical examiner's office. So, you know, it's sort of this like chain of events that happened. So yeah, just be brave, talk to those professionals and put your foot, like put your, just put your face out there. And I think that's the best thing that you can do in, in, in a lot of fields, right? When you're first starting is just make yourself known and work hard, right? That's cool. be reliable. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so. do you have any socials that you want to share with people that they can follow, Twitter, Instagram, anything that people yeah. can look you up? Sure. Yeah. So people can, can follow me at Andronowski Lab. So I have a long last name, but I can send you, <laughs> I can send you my, my Twitter handle. Also my website, andronowskilab.com has a lot of information about what we're doing. People can read the papers that we're publishing in the lab, see our images that I've been talking about and email me. That, of course, can also be found just by Googling me. My name is pretty unique, so you should be able to, should be able to find me pretty easily. Perfect. Great. Oh, thank you awesome. so much for joining us. We 
Really appreciate it. I had a great time. Yeah, learned so much. It's fascinating. Makes me want to go pick up like a book on forensic anthropology exactly. and just do a little reading for fun. <laughs> yeah, if you have any questions about which ones, you know, are helpful or more recent or mm. happy to, to answer those questions. And and also if there are people who are interested in resources for forensic bonusology, can contact me. I've got lots of lists of great papers you can read and, and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, so thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat with me today. Been so much fun. Great. Thanks. Thank you. And we're going to quickly list our social meds uh, just to... to close it out. Um, so if you liked this and any of our other episodes, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. It's how we get boosted up on the various podcasting platforms and other people can find us. You can visit our website at deadmandutelpodcast.com where we will link to to Jana's resources, I guess, in this episode because we don't have any of our own. <laughs> um, on Twitter, we're at deadmandu. On Instagram, we're at The Dead Tell Tales. And our Facebook page is Dead Men Do Tell Tales Podcast. And as always, you can send us an email with questions, comments, whatever you feel like. Just say hi through the website or directly to the Dead Tell Tales at gmail.com. And our opening theme music is Introducing the Pre-Roll by Lee Rosebeer, who you can find on SoundCloud. Thanks, guys. Thank you.